The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. I think the mainstream parties like AMNO is in power. Part of the reason is because without this ideology of Ketuanan Melayu Islam or Malay Islamic supremacy, they have very little hold over the Malay population. By making the minorities, Chinese and Indians, a threat to the Malay community, they can ensure support from the majority of the Malay population. The politics of race and religion still continue. So in a way, Malaysian politics and national ideology is always like a pendulum, whereby the politics of Malay supremacy goes hand in hand with politics of integration very pragmatically. In this episode, ending the cycle of political disarray in Malaysia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Malaysia has cycled through four prime ministers in 40 months, in what some observers say is the most serious era of political instability since independence in 1957. The nation's grand old party, UMNO, or the United Malays National Organisation, was dealt a historic defeat in Malaysia's 2018 general election in the wake of a global corruption scandal involving then-Prime Minister Najib Razak, as well as mass protests in Kuala Lumpur under the banner Bersay, which translates to clean in English. While a new coalition under then 93-year-old former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad took power with promises of a more inclusive politics, it soon collapsed and the subsequent changes of Prime Ministers resulting from shifting political alliances has dashed the expectations of Malaysia's religious and ethnic minorities. How did Malaysia, once a catchword for successful multi-ethnic economic development in Southeast Asia, get to this state of political volatility? What does it augur for its democracy and future prosperity? And is there a way out of political turmoil and return to stability? To address these questions, I'm joined over Zoom by experts in Malaysian politics, Professor James Chin from the University of Tasmania and Dr Nadzri Noor from University Kebangsaan Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. James and Nadzri, a very warm welcome to Ear to Asia. Hi Ali, good to be here. Good afternoon. Well, AMNO is now back in control of Malaysia, despite there being no actual national election since their historic defeat in 2018. James, how did we get here with such a, a rotating bench of prime ministers? It's not the stable democracy many hoped for four years ago. I think that's a really good question to start this discussion. So basically, this story is quite simple. So when Mahathir came into power after the first regime change in 2018, I think there was a great feeling of a new dawn for Malaysian politics. But what they found was that Malaysian politics was too mired in the issue of ethnicity and religion, and they could not hold the country together or the coalition together. So basically, in 2020, the push towards a more Malay-centric government, the pressure was so strong that the Mahathir-led administration collapsed and a new regime came into being called Besatu. 
this new regime was basically led by uh, people who were part of the previous coalition. And that regime was unusual because it had an old Malay-centric, Islamic-centric parties uh, ruling the government. Uh, that coalition lasted for just about one year. And in August last year, because of divisions within the coalition, a new government was formed, this time under AMNO, the party that lost the election in 2018. So James, if I just stay with you for a minute, before we look at who won, why did AMNO lose in 2018? So AMNO lost in 2018 primarily due to two reasons. The first was that Mahathir Mohamad, Malaysia's longest-serving prime minister, decided to defect to the opposition, and he managed to bring all the opposition in Malaysia under his leadership. So he managed to cobble together a big tank where all the major opposition parties came under a thing called Pakatan Harapan, or Alliance of Hope. So that was the first major reason. The second major reason is, of course, the 1MDB corruption affair. I think at that point in time in Malaysia, many people were fed up with corruption, and this is not a new thing. This is a long-standing issue in Malaysia, and people felt that the then Prime Minister Najib Razak, who allegedly stole about six billion US dollars, that was seen as grand corruption. So a combination of a leading Malay politician, Malaysia's longest-serving Prime Minister, defecting to the opposition combined with grand corruption allegations against Najib Razak, these two added up together that led to the fall or the first regime change in Malaysia in 2018. And Nadsri, if I can bring you in here, because James was talking about how politics is so mired in religion and ethnicity. If we stay with 2018, to what extent have the fortunes of UMNO and indeed other parties been tied to race and religion? And to what extent is Malay ethnicity synonymous with being Muslim? It is undeniable that race and religion play a big role in wooing voters, even since the first general election uh, in Malaya in uh, 1955. And since that, Malaysian politics, especially in the peninsula, has been marked by uh, politics of uh, race and uh, religion. Perhaps certain uh, elections before 2018, such as in 1999, 2004, race and religion has been used rather aggressively by the ruling party to garner support, especially from the Malays. And the opposition forces, which are much more liberal under the leadership of Anwar Ibrahim of 1997, and they have this problem, you know, to access to the Malay electorates. Until, as James argued, the incorporation of Mahathir in the opposition force, some of the Malay have some sort of confidence to support the oppositions uh, because Mahadis and other conservative Malay elites has jumped to the opposition and allowed the opposition to make a breakthrough uh, in 2018 general elections. Nadri, when those parties came together in 2018 with Mahathir having jumped ship as well, he took his Malay Muslim party, Basatu, into that Pakatan Harapan coalition. Was it a coalition of convenience, or was it a coalition of shared values and policies? It's more coalitions of convenience. It's rather short-sighted, and the objective is just to win the election and oust Najib. And that's the reason why, you know, the stability of the coalition, you know, was significantly compromised when they, you know, able to get into power in 2018. 
So, James, was Pakatan Harapan popular with voters? I mean, clearly they've succeeded in winning the election, but with UMNO having been in power for so long, how was it perceived post-election by people? So I think immediately after 2018, at least for the first 12 months, I think Pakatan Harapan was genuinely popular. I think after 60 years of UMNO ruling Malaysia, people were essentially looking for a new dawn. I think it's also important to remember that people were really fed up with grand corruption, especially the 1MDB affair. So people were looking towards Pakatan Harapan for a new reset for Malaysia. But unfortunately, I would argue that uh, second year onwards, I think people started losing faith in the Pakatan Harapan for various reasons, but the main one being that there was sort of a general consensus in the Malay community that perhaps they were giving too much power to the non-Malays. That's the first issue. But the other key issue that came back uh, against Pakatan Harapan very, very strongly in the second year onwards was uh, Mahathir's inability to resign at the end of the second year and pass power to Anwar Ibrahim. Because that was a deal, wasn't it, that was done? So that was the general understanding among the Malaysian public heading towards 2018 that when Pakatan get into power, Mahathir will rule the first half and the second half of the five-year term will be given to Anwar Ibrahim. So, James, let's explore the first part of what you said there a little further. The the role, I guess, that the fear Malay supremacy was not being upheld, the role that that played and the evidence for that, why was it that people were able to feel like that and indeed the parties themselves? I think there were several reasons. I think what happened that was not anticipated after 2018 was that you have to remember when Amno was in power, the most important challenger to Amno was the Islamic Party of Malaysia, or better known as PAS. So nobody could foresee that with the fall of Amno, Amno actually created a strategic alliance with PAS. So he had two major Malay parties, Amno and PAS, coming together selling a very simple narrative to the Malay population, especially the conservative Malay population in rural areas, that the Malays were being marginalised by this Pakatan Harapan government and that the non-Malays in the Pakatan Harapan government had too much power. And therefore, over the long run, the Malays will lose power or Malay supremacy. In terms of the evidence, the sort of narrative they were providing was basically that key government positions were given to non-Malays So the favorite example they want to give was that for the very first time since independence, a non-Malay, in fact, a native person from the state of Sabah was appointed the chief justice. What was even worse was that this guy was a practicing Catholic. So they used that very, very strongly against the Pakatan government. The other big issue they used against the Pakatan government was that the Pakatan government was in the process of signing up international conventions on elimination of uh, race and religion and international political rights. I think many people in the conservative Malay community were very worried that all these international conventions eventually will lead to a loss of Malay supremacy in Malaysia. And Natalie, should we give some context around this for people who are not aware, but this concept of Malay supremacy and affirmative action for the Malay majority is very entrenched in Malaysia, isn't it? It goes back to the new economic policy of 1971. Can you give us a sense of what it means in practice? In practice, the Malays considered that Malaysia you know, belongs to the Malay 
it's in a way you know a nation by blood by culture rather than citizen perhaps uh, some Malays consider non Malays as fellow citizens but not fellow nationals so this you know aspirations has been filled by especially by amno using its politics of race and culture and perpetuated through the political system state structures even through the educations mass media to invoke you know the imaginations of malaysianness discussing about malay rights uh, malay interest and that's the reason why apart from being you know dominant majority and always supported by the national government even during pakatan harapan years with bersatu the mahadis party uh, in the dominant position and other political machinations uh, in the political system such as the position of the Malay in the constitution Malay language special interests Islam as the official religions of the country and you know uh, by adding up all of these things from time to time when the Malay's interest you know perceived to be under threat uh, the government will retaliate with certain policies that will strengthen symbolically the strength of the Malay to help the community to in a way dominate or at least uh, sit at the same level with other community and that's the reason why you know especially after the 1969 general elections whereby the non-Malay parties or non-AMNO garnered more supports and also constituencies the government in 1970 retaliate by introducing the national economic policy practically support the rise of Malay middle class and also elite until 1990 and the spirit of NEP or the national economic policy is still here actually in Malaysia but when we look at the collapse and the failure of Pakatan Harapan what about the role of the civil service nadsri i wonder after so many decades in office How blurred were the lines between AMNO, the previous government, and the civil service, and to what extent or what role would they have played in the success or failure of Pakatan policies? Of course, um, the civil service constituted part of the regime through 60 years of the end rule in Malaysia. There was, you know. Um, blurry line between the state and also the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy in a way has been amnonized eh? uh, if i can use that word i understand what you mean yes and there are a number of uh, disciplinary actions and machination has been done to you know amnonize the public service including to appoint loyalists to top positions and in fact the bureaucracies or the state yeah, has been used to perpetuate uh, the amno rules through various ways they were and are used in the elections for example to get into the people to give public service in the name of amno and internally there was what they call certain political oath that you know public servant need to take to show support not to the constitutions but practically to the ruling elite or the ruling party and that's the reason why they you know work not only to serve the people as public servant but also perhaps as party workers for the ruling regime 
And during the Pakatan Harapan years of that 22 months from 2018 to 2020, they has become one of the challenge by the Pakatan Harapan government in effectively delivering their policies at the same time they perhaps has uh, frustrated or has leaked certain valuable information to the oppositions at that time. And this has caused Pakatan Harapan government cannot perform effectively. We get to 2020 and James Pakatan Harapan collapses, Mahathir resigns as Prime Minister, the new leadership of his Basatu party takes Basatu out of Pakatan and forms a new coalition with UMNO. That didn't last either. UMNO lost confidence in their coalition partners. It sounds quite extraordinary. So I think the way to understand the 2020 change of regime is that within Pakatan Harapan itself, they faced tremendous pressure from the Malay population who were starting to believe the narrative that the Pakatan Harapan government was too much influenced by the non-Malays. So when Besatu broke away and formed a new coalition, the unique thing about this coalition was that it consists of only Malay Islamic parties in Malaysia. So you had Besatu and you had AMNO, the previous ruling party, plus you had the Islamic party pass. So this was the first time in Malaysia's political history where the federal government consists of only Malay Islamic parties. Now, that government did not last. Uh, in fact, it led to another regime change in August last year. It did not last for a very, very simple reason. You have to remember that uh, during this time, the leadership of UMNO, including the president and, of course, the ex-leader, Najib, were still under corruption charges related to the 1MDB affair. So they thought that when they came into power in a coalition with Basatu, all these charges will be dropped. But the Basatu leadership decided not to do anything, not to intervene with the judicial process in Malaysia. And because of that, AMNO, led by Zahid and Najib Razak, who's still very, very influential in Malaysian politics, they decided to pull the plug uh, on Basatu. And that's the reason why in August last year, the Basatu government fell and a new coalition under AMNO rose from the ashes. The new coalition under UMNO, if we go to 2021, Malaysia's king appoints the next prime minister, doesn't he? Yes. The way it was in Malaysia is that if the politicians come, come to a consensus or there's no clear majority in parliament, under Malaysia's law, uh, the king has the right to appoint any politician he feels will command the majority in parliament. So in this case, basically what the king did was that the king asked every MP in Malaysia to submit a thing called a statutory declaration about who they will support. So in both cases, in March 2020 and in August 2021, they went through this process and that was how the prime minister was appointed. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. 
I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by seasoned observers of Malaysian politics, Dr Nadsri Noor from University Kebangsaan, Malaysia and Professor James Chin from the University of Tasmania. So James, just picking up uh, where we left off before that short break, essentially uh, in 2022 where we sit at the moment, is Malaysia back to where it started with UMNO firmly back in power? Uh, yes and no. So yes, in a sense that we've come a full cycle. UMNO lost power in 2018 and in 2021, they regained power. Uh, the UMNO nominee became the Prime Minister of Malaysia. But my argument is that whether Malaysia comes to a full cycle completely will be decided in the next general election, what they call the 15th general election or GE15, and that will be held later this year. My argument is that if that election AMNO does very well and AMNO is confirmed by the voting public, then yes, we have come a complete full cycle. And again, this is not unique to Malaysia. In fact, the experience in Malaysia is very similar to what happened to the LDP in Japan. Some of your listeners will remember that the LDP lost government in Japan and three years later, they came back to form the new government again. So in some ways, we might be looking at a complete cycle in Malaysian politics as well. So let's look at the circumstances, the broader environment that we are in prior to that general election. Nadsri, economically and socially, what have been the consequences of the past three years of political upheaval? Because, of course, we've had a pandemic at the same time. For example, the change of government in, uh, in, in 2020, the day the, the new regime or the Pakatan Harapan collapsed in uh, February 2020, the Malaysian stock exchange eh, lost around $7 billion. Since then, politics in Malaysia has been unstable, even though Malaysia under AMNO and also Barisan National rule uh, for that 60 years was authoritarian in, in nature, but stability is one of its uh, character. And since 2020, we couldn't characterize Malaysian politics or the state as stable anymore. And because of that, the ruling regime at the time, Muhyiddin Yassid, who took over the premiership from Mahathir uh, in March uh, 2020, has avoided parliamentary checks for about a year. There was poor management and the regime was politically weak and too distracted to gain political support rather than focus on governing uh, Malaysia with good governance and focus on the implications brought uh, by the pandemic. And Nadzri, the, the implications of the pandemic, I mean, you, you did talk about what happened to the market when there was this instability politically, but there have been devastating consequences for people, haven't there, in Malaysia because of the pandemic and because of the weaker economy? Yeah, because of the shift in the political system from a weak democracy, perhaps under Pakatan Harapan, and towards, you know, essentially authoritarianism because there's no checks. The people are not, in a way, empowered to speak up except through the social media. So the, the government becomes, you know, less responsive. And because of its weak political support, they are too distracted and too focused on gaining new support and also their political standing. And this, you know, contribute to its weak policies and response for COVID-19 implications. James, can I ask you, is economic security key and 
Is that what uh, the former Pakatan Harapan coalition was not seen as providing? Now, I think the key thing with Malaysia heading towards the next general election was that I suspect this election will not be a normal election. Uh, we have seen other parts of the world how after two years of lockdown, basically the voters are looking for stability. They're looking to put the country back to a normal path. And I suspect the same thing will happen to Malaysia. The other important point to remember is that although the country has undergone through tremendous change under COVID-19, the underlying drivers of politics, uh, race and religion, is still a very, very powerful tool in Malaysia. The only difference with GE15 is uh, really is up to the Malay community which political party they want to support. And my argument is that now there are two major Malay political parties, Bersatu, the other one's AMNO, and the Malay polity will have to decide which one they will support. Because if they split their vote in GE15, then we will see more political instability. If the Malay voters vote strongly for either Bersatu or AMNO, and this party get into power, then we will have a measure of political stability. And I think coming out of COVID, I think this is what the polity in Malaysia is looking for. They are really looking for stability because the last three years in terms of political and economic instability is really being quite a horrible thing in Malaysia. Do you think, though, James, that UMNO is poised to take power back alone? They are poised for a big win, or is it too early to say? I think the momentum is with UMNO. So if you look at the last three state elections, last six months, in Malacca, in Sarawak, in Johor, UMNO or its proxies have done uh, very, very well. In both Malacca and Johor, UMNO actually wants two-thirds majority. One of the interesting things about Malaysian politics is that two-thirds majority is seen as the indicator that you are in complete power because you need two-thirds majority in parliament to pass constitutional amendments. So UMNO has the momentum. Whether they can keep the momentum until the next general election will be dependent on how fast the economy can recover. That's number one. And secondly, whether the opposition can come together like what they did in 2018 and put on a united front against AMNO. So there are still some issues out there, but by and large, I think the momentum is with AMNO at the present moment. James, from an outside point of view, it's easy to look at that and say it's only four years since AMNO lost power and its leader has now been sentenced to 12 years in jail on corruption, which of course Najib Razak is appealing and he is out and about campaigning. But are people prepared to overlook that? Is that not important? I think you have to understand that the political culture in Southeast Asia is very different from, say, political culture in Australia or other Western countries. Although it is true that Najib has been found guilty and, in fact, he lost his appeal, people do not see corruption the way uh, you might see corruption in the West. This is not a new thing in Southeast Asia because one of the interesting things happening right now is that the next president of the Philippines could be Bombom Marcos. Uh, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, who we all know is one of the most corrupt leaders that's ever come out of Southeast Asia. So yes, it is possible for Najib to make a run for the prime ministership again. But again, it will depend on how he plays his card. 
uh, so far, he has been quite successful in repackaging himself under moniker Kobosku. Basically, he's using the social media very, very effectively. And tell us about that moniker just before you move on for those. Sure. Bosku means my boss and his supporters at every election rally he goes to. His supporters will shout Bosku Apamalu. In other words, there's nothing to be ashamed of my boss. In other words, they're saying that the one MDB affair is just history, water under the bridge, and that, you know, it, that really doesn't matter. I think the other thing uh, that is happening is that people do realize that one of the interesting things was that when Najib was in charge from uh, 2009 and 2018, Malaysia actually saw strong economic growth. So people are thinking that, yes, this guy's a crook, but maybe you know he has the magic formula to bring Malaysia back in economic terms. And I'll come back to the economy in a minute. But before I, I do that, Nazri, can I ask you, how do you see the prospects for Amno and Razak going into the general election? So in the current state election in Malaysia lately, eh, in Malacca and also in Johor, Amno has a big potential to make a big comeback in the next election. We can see that uh, 1MDB is no longer issue among the Malays and the situation has changed very significantly in contrast to the previous elections. And COVID-19 in a way has at one side discredited the current administration, but at the same time also helped the administration to you know, regain uh, power. In the two state elections in Malacca and also in Johor, the, the voters turned out were low in the two states. Most of those who go for voting, actually UMNO's uh, lawyer supporters, Pakatan, even during the 2018 general election, realized their vote from outstation voters, meaning voters from Kuala Lumpur, from Singapore, from other urban centers, especially in peninsular Malaysia. So the COVID-19 pandemic in a way has demotivated them to go for vote because, you know, fear of uh, getting contracted in these two states whereby there are a huge number of AMNO strongholds and most of the AMNO voters are local people and due to certain machinations and aggressive politics played by AMNO, especially also by Najib using his influence over the Malay community and many of them turned out during the voting day and even though they only garnered around 40% of the popular votes, as uh, what James has mentioned, they managed to win both of the elections with two-thirds majority. So for them, once again, as what James has argued, the psychology of Asians, the Malays, is different than those in well-industrialized and advanced democracy. Will UMNO also use supremacy of Malays again in this campaign? And will it be an argument that if you support the opposition, your life will not be so good? Yeah, I think they will do that once again, but rather pragmatically. So in front of the Malay electorate, they will play up this politics. But in front of its Chinese allies, especially the MCA, Malaysian Chinese Association of Voters, they will play around a certain politics of integration, like the current government of Ismail Sabri. He has this political ideology of what he's framed as Keluarga Malaysia or Malaysian family. But the politics of race and religion still continue. So in a way, Malaysian politics and national ideology 
even during the first Mahadistin as the premier in 1981 and later on uh, Najib Razak and now under Ismail Sabri is always like a pendulum whereby you know the politics of Malaysian supremacy goes hand in hand with politics of integration very pragmatically Ali It's an interesting argument or an interesting point that you make Nazri and, and James I wonder I mean can you see a day in Malaysia where politics is not so mired in ethnicity and religion uh, Unfortunately no I think as long as uh, the mainstream parties like AMNO is in power the reason why they exist is because of this ideology of ketuanan Melayu Islam or Malay Islamic supremacy Part of the reason is because uh, without this ideology, they have very little hold over the Malay population. By making the minorities, Chinese and Indians, the boogeymen, is a threat to the Malay community. They can ensure support from the majority of the Malay population. Unfortunately, the way it works in Malaysia is that this ideology of uh, racial supremacy is tied to economic benefits. As you mentioned earlier in the program, there was this thing called a new economic policy. Although it's framed as affirmative action, the reality is that the majority of the population actually have access to state resources through the NEP. So a very simple example of that, and this is quite shocking to people outside Malaysia, is that if you're a Malay person in Malaysia, if you were to buy a new house from a private developer, normally the private developer will give you a house discount of between 7% to 15%. purely simply because you're Malay or you're classified as a Malay person. So ethnicity plus Malay supremacy comes with clear economic benefits, including things like a special university that was established just for the Malay and Muslim community. So I don't see this thing being stopped in Malaysia anytime soon. And in fact, I would argue the reverse, that it's going to get worse moving forward. James, you talked earlier about how uh, last time when, when UMNO was in power, there was very strong economic growth. Affirmative action policies like you've just been describing do not come cheaply. Can that economic growth be repeated if UMNO does get back in power in a big way? And how sustainable are those affirmative action policies for the state? One of the things that people keep forgetting about Malaysia is that Malaysia actually has a huge reservoir of natural resources. So yes, the affirmative action policy can continue for many years to come. The other way they've done it is that they've done it in quite a clever way. The affirmative action policy at the business level is handled differently. So at the business level, they're not talking about giving business opportunities only to the Malays themselves. What they do is that they control the licensing system. So for example, they will only issue licenses to the Malay companies and the Malay companies will subcontract the work out to anybody, Malays or non-Malays, it doesn't matter. So through this process of what we call rent-seeking economic terms, this system can actually last for a very long time. As long as the country is rich, uh, you can afford it. As we draw our conversation to a close, do you think, Nadsri, that we are going to see a period of stability, of an end to the instability with the outcome of the election? And what do you think could help uh, the extraordinary party shuffling that we've seen over recent years, is there some way of trying to prevent that being so easy? Before we talk about the prevention, even though you know, Malaysia was in 
critical impasse for about two years until the current government has struck a memorandum of understanding or cooperations with the opposition to stabilize the national government and thus give the national government more time to focus on the national issues. Because the government is too weak right now, it also has to listen to the opposition and also the terms of agreement in that MOU. Uh, one of them is to have certain new machinations to have political stability in Malaysia and one of them is to have an anti-hoping law which is currently being discussed in the Malaysian parliament. The alternative that is currently being championed by many civic association is to have recall elections. The law of recall elections whereby if a legislator jump from one party to another after the elections, he or she need to relinquish his position and compete in a fresh election, a new elections, and regain the support from the people. I'm not sure whether this is possible or not because this alternative political machination will take time. But I think perhaps in the short run, they might pass this anti-hoping law. And by having this, at least in the next general election, we could see better stability in uh, Malaysian politics. James, do you agree with that? I think I have to reiterate my view, which is that the crucial thing for Malaysia is really the next general election. Whether the elections uh, were written a strong mandate to one side, either the governing side or the opposition side, and whether you have one strong Malay party uh, that sort of uh, put a lid on everything else. Until you get that formula, strong Malay party, a strong coalition, I think Malaysia will be heading for turbulent times. And you don't see that there would be realistic moves in the shorter term towards things like recall elections? No, for a very simple reason that there's a big rush now to get the parties together for the next general election. My position is that things like anti-hopping bill, recall elections, those things are not as important as the other bill that people are talking about for the last few years. And that is to limit the tenure of the prime minister. I think one of the big problems you find, not only in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, is that very often trouble starts when you have a person who's been in charge for a very long time. So Mahathir was in power for 23 years, and many of the issues you see in Malaysia today were actually caused by him in the 1980s and 1990s. So my wish list is actually for Parliament to pass the law to limit the term of the Prime Minister to two terms or maximum of 10 years. I feel that's a much more important thing rather than anti-hopping law. An enormous thank you to both of you for your insights and for joining us here on Ear to Asia. It's been wonderful to talk to you and I'm quite sure that we will be talking again with those elections likely to be held at the end of this year. Many thanks indeed for your time. Thank you. No worries. Our guests have been Professor James Chin from the University of Tasmania and Dr Nazri Noor from University Kabangs An, Malaysia. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show and help us by spreading the word on social media. 
This episode was recorded on the 14th of April 2022. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2022, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.